Thanks for listening to this podcast from Walks Around Britain. For more information, our terms of use, and to click through to see the show notes on our blog with photographs, videos, and links to related sites, please visit walksaroundbritain.co.uk. On the 14th edition of the Walks Around Britain podcast, we celebrate the 40th anniversary of the Southwest Coast Path. We find out about the website TripBod and... Because we set off from Barnsley and drove to Kathmandu, whereas nowadays you fly, of course, that took three months. And it was three months on the way back. John Driscoll tells us about one of the first documented trips up Mount Everest. Hello and welcome to the Walks Around Britain podcast. I'm Andrew White and I'm your walking guide through the next 30 minutes of walking and outdoor listening on our podcast. Today the podcast comes to you from Cornwall, England's most westerly county, and from my vantage point on the terrace of the Nair Hotel on the south coast of Cornwall, I'm looking out onto a rather lively Atlantic Ocean today. We're here because 2013 is the 40th anniversary of the South West Coast Path. And there's a rather special event taking place later this year to raise funds to help look after the path. Joining me over here on today's brisk coast is Steve Church from the South West Coast Path Association. Steve, tell us more about the coast path. Well, it's 630 miles long. Um, it started originally as a, a route for coast guards to get around the entire coast of, of the southwest. Uh, goes way back. Some of some of the bits can be dated back to the 1600s, 1700s. Um, some places you've still got some of the old coast guard cottages, the old coast guard lookouts, which uh, dot the path as it goes around. Obviously, large bits have disappeared in the interim since those days, since those very early days. But uh, following on from an act of parliament, in fact, in the late 1940s, it became one of the so-called national trails, or long-distance paths, as they were originally called. Longest one in the country, 630 miles, which does follow these old uh, Coast Guard paths. But, of course, so many of them disappeared that after the official legal setting up of the Coast Path happened, it was a situation whereby the line was there on the map, but so often the line wasn't there on the ground. And in actual fact, it was that situation which did lead to the establishment of the Southwest Coast Path Association back in the 1970s, 40 years ago. So it's the 40th anniversary in 2013. What special events are happening? Well, we've got a ma- the major event comes up in the spring. It's over April and May. What we've decided to do is to try and have a relay race, or relay walk, I should say. It was inspired by the Olympic torch idea, which, as you know, went all the way through the country. So we're having an Olympic not an Olympic torch, but possibly an Olympic boot, yes. um, which will go all the way around the coast path. One walk would start up at one end, up at Minehead, and go all the way down the north coast to Land's End. The other walk start at Pool Harbour on the southern side, all the way along the south coast 
also to Land's End, meet up for our 40th anniversary celebration at Land's End itself, uh, early May, May the 7th, in fact, just after Bank Holiday. When I say walk, I don't mean one person or another people are walking the whole thing. We've divided up the coast path into 20-odd sections along the north coast, 30-odd sections along the south coast. Convenient bite-side sections, um, reasonable days or half days, inviting everybody to join us, whether they're members of the Coast Path Association or not. They're all guided walks, we're playing on transport, so everything's done. They get a free t-shirt as well. And when they come along for the walk, hopefully they'll be bringing some sponsorship money with them. That sponsorship money will then be added up and go towards improvements to the Coast Path. The association is very keen that the general everyday maintenance of it is responsibility of the authorities because it's a national trial and it's their responsibility to do so. But we do understand that it's sometimes not possible to do improvements over and above the basic necessary to keep the path going as it were. And so we're happy to put funding where we've got it to those improvements. And uh, as an example of that, we've got some improvements lined up just around the corner there, in fact, um, going out towards the headlands, where an old Cornish hedge, for example, is falling down, uh, and the style over it, which the coast path crosses, is in getting in a very bad state of disrepair. So some of the sponsorship money, we hope, will be going to that, and we've got that organised with the, the local path manager. But as you'd also appreciate, it's been a very, very odd year weather-wise over this winter and we've had a fantastic number of cliff falls this year, far more than we would normally have. It doesn't affect the overall integrity of the path, which is still fine and most people won't even notice the difference, but in certain locations clearly it is a problem. And so some of that sponsorship money that we're gaining from our walk hopefully will go towards some of those repairs, although some of them are so, so big even our money's not going to go towards that, but we're going to be doing what we can to that. 50 odd stages of the walk, we are hoping everybody will join us, as many people as possible will join us to bring their money. It's advertised on a website, it's greatsouthwestwalk.co.uk and if you go onto that website it sets out when all the walks are, they go day after day after day as I say, how long they are, where they go, where you start and finish and you sign up that way and we hope, you know, please everybody, as many people as possible, come along. Not only will you be helping us but you'll be having a fantastic day out as well. Thanks Steve. Well, the Southwest Coast Path passes through the counties of Somerset, Devon, Cornwall and Dorset. And here in Cornwall, it also passes through the Cornwall area of outstanding natural beauty, which is helpfully shortened to the AONB. And waiting for me over here outside the Nair Hotel is Peter Maxted and Julian Powis from the Cornwall AONB. Hello you two. So Peter, tell us about the AONB. Well, the Cornwall area of outstanding natural beauty is about a third of Cornwall and it takes in all the best parts of the coast. So I would say at least 80-90% um, of it runs through the, the Cornwall AONB, basically the best bits of the county. So what do you find inside the area? Well, uh, of course there's a stunning coastline, very different on the north coast to the south coast. The north coast is more rugged, the south coast is softer and uh, more gentle. Um, inland, of course, we've got Bodmin Moor and the, the Camel Estuary. Um, but, you know, you've got pretty much everything. You've got uh, Cornish archaeology, you've got fantastic uh, stone walls, you've got stunning views, high cliffs, shingle beaches, sand beaches. You know, the, the variety in Cornwall is probably greater than it is anywhere else in the country. And this makes the path so special? That makes the path absolutely special. The path is people's route through the Cornwall AOMB, the best way to see it, and it's just an absolute jewel in the crown, yeah. Do you think many people really know about this area? 
I think a lot of people uh, have the idea that Cornwall has a huge amount to offer. Um, more and more people now know about uh, one of our most important, perhaps the most important national trails, which is the Southwest Coast Path. Um, not so many people know that Cornwall uh, has a very large area of outstanding natural beauty, and that's something we, of course, are working on as well. Julian, how important is the Southwest Coast Path to you? It's one of the reasons that I'm still in Cornwall. I, I came down here to study and I fell in love with the idea that you can leave the house in the morning and just wander off for four hours and look at the sea and think and uh, occasionally spot dolphins. It, it's a glorious little path of freedom. I love it. There's quite a lot of wildlife to be spotted here, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. You never know what you're going to see. Um, yes, I haven't been down here that long, so I haven't seen a basking shark yet. People who've been down here longer tell me that they, they can be spotted quite often. Um, I, but I've seen several pods of dolphins and it's um, and sort of birds and cormorants and whatnot, the usual affair. And it's, uh, yes, it's, a, it's a lovely part, a lovely walk. Julian, Peter, many thanks. So if you were thinking about coming to the south of Cornwall to take in all or, or just a part of the epic southwest coast path, then where we are right now, the Nair Hotel, is a perfect place for a base. There's some photos and links on the show notes to this edition of the podcast on our blog, which is at blog.walksaroundbritain.co.uk. And if you'd like to become a part of the great southwest walk, then the details are also on the show notes. While well, I'm here, I'm just going to go for a walk. <laughs> Well, that was beautiful. There's some of the places along the path down here on the south coast are just stunning. And even if you're not going to be walking the whole length, some of the little sections are well worth the time to come and visit. So when you have travelled to a new place, discovering all about it is one of the adventures. But it is useful to have a guide to help you explore, which was the initial basis for our website and our video walks. But imagine having someone trusted you could arrange to meet and say, taste some fine wines or to paint a picture or even have as a walking guide. Well, Sally Broom is joining me now from London, and Sally is one of the team behind the website TripBot. So, Sally, tell us about TripBot. Well, thanks, Andrew. It's great to be here. So, TripBot.com is a place where visitors can connect directly with local people, and local people like them. Hmm. So, the idea behind it is that travel should really, in its roots, is all about people. It should be all about people. It should be all about having personal experiences. And so, what we do is we provide a platform that facilitates that, and we aim to ensure that every connection is trusted and really valuable. So then people can go to the TripBot site and they can find, search for a person who does experiences in, in different areas. That's exactly the idea. So there's two things that local people can offer on TripBot.com. The first thing is helping somebody to plan their trip. So before they've even arrived, right. um, a visitor can get in touch and ask all those questions that sometimes can be really hard to find answers to. They might be things that are quite personal to them. They might be really niche queries about where they can go and eat and to find food that uh, doesn't involve gluten, for example, for people who have gluten intolerances. Or it might be a query about what to do in the Lake District with two young kids when it's raining, for example, which is often quite likelihood. So um, mm -hmm. having somebody uh, as a friend at the other end, as we say, to help them to plan their trip can make all the difference. And the second thing that somebody can actually offer on the marketplace are local experiences. These are opportunities to connect with a local person and to, I suppose, spend a bit of time in the shoes of a local 
And this could be everything for, from going for a walk with a dog, which sometimes when you're away from home and you're missing your own pet, it's really nice to go for a walk with, uh, with their dog. Or it might be um, learning how to cook local food, or it might be going and creating a beautiful original piece of artwork with a local artist. It really is, um, there really is something available for everybody on there. So the idea is really to sort of empower local people around the world to help other people who are tourists coming to their area. That's exactly what it's about. It really is. It's about, I suppose, giving a voice back to the people who live in the destination. So it's not just about big travel companies marketing a destination for its pristine beaches or its beautiful lakes and mountains. It's about putting a voice to the destination, a really local voice. And, uh, and I think that's really important because so often when you ask somebody what their most memorable travel experiences have been, inevitably it involves a local person who they've met on the way. It might be just a little chance encounter and it really makes all the difference. So how did the site come about? What's the story behind it? Well, actually, it's been a few years in the making. Um, I was actually at university when I started a website which was aimed at quite young and gap year volunteers wanting to go and volunteer somewhere else in the world. And I just thought that in this day and age with the internet, there must be a better way to connect young, passionate people with great local projects and trusted individuals on the ground. So I started off doing that and uh, realised after a while that the opportunity was, was quite a lot bigger than just volunteering. And we developed it into a network for any travellers who are looking to connect with a local individual to help them with their trip. And we launched the first version of TripBod. And that was really just trip planning. So it was a local person saying, get in touch with me if you're interested in the same things as I am. And I'd be really delighted to help you plan your trip. And I'll give you information that's completely personalised and relevant to the time of year that you're travelling the things that you're interested in. Um, so we started doing that in 2009. And then in 2010, we realized that actually lots of our visitors were wanting to connect with their local trip bod and do things and, you know, meet for a cup of tea or have a wander around some local markets. And what's more, we, we really felt that we wanted to empower each individual voice of each individual trip bod. And that's when we decided we would launch the marketplace. Um, it was around the time that websites like Airbnb and other marketplaces were really coming into force in the travel industry and we thought that that made a really good model for us because it would put a bit more autonomy in the hands of every individual trip bod giving them a shop that they could use as their profile and fill with wonderful local products and that's the website that we launched. It's really something which has developed from the rise of the internet isn't it? Oh, that's exactly it. I mean, you know, there's lots of reasons why the travel industry has developed in the way that it has done. It's because websites like TripAdvisor let you get um, the better or for worse information about places to stay in your destinations. Um, and you can go and book directly with those local guest houses, for example. You can have a much more local experience. And I think for a lot of travellers, this is really important. I think people like to know where they're spending their money and they like to connect with other people. They like to deal with people and and if they're going to stay somewhere, it's a lot nicer to book with an individual than it is to go through a faceless booking engine, really. Um, so I think for a lot of people who are a bit more mindful about the way they travel now, the internet is starting to open up untold possibilities. And it's also not just about travelling to another country and meeting up with a trip bod there. 
you could stay in the UK and have someone more knowledgeable about an area take you to places and experience things with them. I think that's an absolutely great point, actually. The idea that you can adventure on your doorstep as much as you can overseas. I think, you know, we all love to travel. We all love to go on holidays and that's fantastic. (laughs) But we often spend the rest of our year feeling a bit kind of maybe depressed about waiting for our next holiday. But actually getting out there and exploring what's on your doorstep is a really, really big opportunity. But I think quite often, we forget to actually ask for help in how to make a wonderful weekend away somewhere and we forget to you know think of new adventures on our doorstep so being able to connect with somebody to help you maybe just you know explore a bit further and learn a bit more about the place where you live um, is a really fantastic thing and I do this you know it's great I for example don't have any experience in arts and crafts but it's great to be able to connect with people who do have that experience in my either local area or other place in the UK and to go and visit them and to do things like make pottery using local clay or make an original piece of art using natural materials that you've been and foraged from out in the in the woods and in the countryside those sorts of experiences don't have to be confined to going overseas at all. Sally thanks for coming on our podcast. Andrew, it's been nice to talk to you. What a lovely way to end the Friday. And if you'd like to visit our ever-expanding TripBod store, where you can book to come on some of the walks we filmed for our website, then simply visit walksaroundbritain.co.uk, scroll down to the bottom and click the TripBod link. Now, this year's Sheffield Adventure Film Festival is taking place at the Showroom Cinema in the city between the 1st and the 3rd of March. It's the mix of amazing films, as well as the talks and lectures that we've come to expect from this festival. But this year, there's 80 epic adventures across six big screens, which is guaranteed to make for a great couple of days. One of the talks in the festival is about the story of the first recorded trek to Mount Everest. In 1968, five students from Yorkshire made a remarkable trek to the world's highest mountain. Two of the team, David Peckett and John Driscoll, have recently written a book about their adventures. They'll be talking at the festival on the Saturday afternoon, and I'm pleased to have John with me now on the phone. John, it's a long time since that trip to Everest. Tell me how it came about. Well, I suppose it was that um, I was fascinated with mountains and wanted to do something, but you realise in your teenage years that you're not really good enough to... Uh, at whatever it is, in my case, it was climbing. I wasn't a climber, but I wasn't good enough to get invited on a Himalayan expedition. And I think it was Joe Brown, who was one of the first sort of working class people who actually made it onto an an expedition on catching jungle. But I mean, he was he was the top man. He was he was the best. Um, and shortly after I got my 18th birthday, they they stopped national service. And, I mean, there was a a chance for adventure there. But for ordinary people like us, to travel to those places at that time was just out of the question because of the expense and so on. So, I mean, what we decided, we really wanted to do something. I suppose it's the same motivation that motivates students to go on gap years now. In a way, it was a very early gap year. And we set about saving for two years, and we saved a quarter of our salary until we had enough, uh, 300 pounds each, we clubbed together, bought a Land Rover, and then that money paid for everything that we did 
on the whole journey, um, the petrol, the food and everything. Today there's almost a, a constant stream of people heading up to the summit from base camp. But back in the late 60s it was still relatively a new thing, wasn't it? Well, what we... Yes, what what we realised, well, we we went back just to mark the, well, it wasn't exactly the 40th anniversary, but around the 40th anniversary of our trip. And I realised there was a road now as far as Jerry. And the friend I went with, Dave Peckett, who's written the book with me, his story is quite remarkable in that um, he was admitted to hospital on the very day that Tensing and Hillary stood on the top of Everest. 29th of May 1953 and he was in hospital for three years having a bone graft because he got TB in his hip Good grief. and when he left hospital after three years in a wheelchair he had one leg five centimeters shorter than the other and no movement in one of his hips and yet he came out of a wheelchair graduated to a walking stick and then about 12 years later he trekked uh, the 150 miles as it then was to Mount Everest and then 150 back. So his story is, is quite wow. But to come back to your original question, when we got to Kathmandu, we didn't even know whether it was possible to do what we wanted to do. There was a, a guy called Colonel Jimmy Roberts who would organize Sherpas and that sort of thing for um, big expeditions. And I think later on he got to um, organizing them for smaller groups. But um, in the whole month that we were walking from just outside Kathmandu, we met five other groups of Westerners. So it was very, very uncommon then, completely different to what it is today. Um, when we got to base camp, well, it's actually Kalapatar that people refer to as base camp, because you can't actually see Mount Everest from base camp. Um, yes. But we were completely on our own. There was just nobody there. Um, I mean, the Sherpa didn't come with us. We were just on our own. And there was no evidence of human beings ever having been there. And of course, all the conditions on the route, there were just the local villages. And we slept on the floors of the houses in the, in the local villages on the way. So how did it compare when you went back to the track again? Had the area well, changed it, a lot? Yeah, it, we, I mean, we realised when we saw the pictures of it, because David can hardly walk, um, so we couldn't repeat the actual walking bit of it. But the road to Jiri, we drove through a number of the villages that we'd slept in on the journey, on the start and the end of the journey out to Everest. And, um, you know, I mean, they'd changed. Um, they'd got piped water, they'd got electricity in some places. There was a school. Um, there were no longer medieval villages because uh, the conditions when we went through was i mean it was similar to the anglo-saxons there weren't you know there was no heating or lighting um there were no window no glass anyway in the windows it was just open and they cooked by an open fire actually inside the house so okay. the evening wore on <laughs> you had to get closer <laughs> to the closer to the floor to survive but um you know, I mean, in places it was still pretty primitive. But I think the thing that motivated us as much to write the book as, as anything is the fact that we realised that because David and I had kept very good diaries, we wrote longhand, you know, a sheet of full scap a day because we were great fans of Robert Falcon Scott, we realised we were sitting on a record of Nepal right at the start of the trekking industry of today. 
So it was worth recording. We felt people would be interested, you know, at whatever stage they've done the uh, the track, because we felt there would be no record prior to ours. My son went for his honeymoon to do the Luttler to Everest track, and we we found fascinating taking our old photographs as he did, locating the actual spot and seeing how much it's changed. And in our yes. talk, we actually you know, show some of these pictures and we've rather cleverly, well, I haven't, but some, someone else has faded one <laughs> into the other because we found the oh, exact marvelous. spot. And we've got this terrific shot of Namchi Bazaar. My son managed to get pretty much exactly the same view and take a shot now. And of course, that's quite remarkable, uh, the differences in Namchi Bazaar. Do you think with the increasing quality of outdoor and climbing gear that if you were to do the same climb now at the age you were when you first attempted it, do you think it would be easier now? Well, I, I suppose it's bound to be because, for a start, you get, there's lots of information about it. I mean, when we set off, we we had no map. We oh, yeah. didn't know where to go at all. <laughs> we found a guy to, to show us the way. He uh, insisted we needed a porter. His English wasn't good, but it was passable. Uh, the porter's English wasn't, uh, he didn't speak it at all, but, um, you know, it was actually just finding the way. I mean, on the way back, as soon as we entered Sherpa country, he started uh, drinking the local brew, Chang, and getting drunk with his mates because he lived in that area. And oh he slowed us down three or four times, and on the way back, we really wanted to get back because... We probably had three washes in the month. I mean, there was there were no washing facilities in the houses. We just had to occasionally when we passed a stream. So we really, and of course the food was really monotonous. So we were anxious to get back. And in the end, we had to sack him and say, we're going on without you. And uh, then we were led by the porter who didn't speak any English at all. <laughs> but um, we were really, we really liked him. He was a really good guy. And I mean, I still smile now at our understanding because we, we ran out of money right up in the Namche Valley. And uh, the Sherpa said, oh, I, I can get some, you know, because we'd, we'd pay him back. And he got us this money. But it was shortly after that we sacked him. And the money we had, <laughs> the, the entire amount of money we had, we'd borrowed from him. So. <laughs> but he never asked, well, I paid him back when we got to Kathmandu. But he didn't demand it back as, a, you know retribution for having been sacked but did it really occur to you how dangerous it was well i think that's the advantage of youth isn't it because yes. uh it i mean we we talked a bit about it recently particularly with having uh, the book and it's brought the three of the five of us in very close contact really and we've often talked about that now and how it would arise because well, there was no mobile phone there was no internet um, the only way to get in and out was to walk. Um, David Beckett was disabled, and of course, if he'd have gone over on his ankle or something, he'd have had to be carried. And then when we got to Namche Bazaar, we realised we only had the resources. To, we could not dally longer than, say, two or three days. So we went from Namche Bazaar to base camp in two and a half days. They now recommend about seven or eight days yeah, seven, in yes. order to acclimatise. So the big problem we had there was actually suffering from altitude. And um, I was really quite badly ill with altitude sickness. And just four years after that, I had a stroke, a brain hemorrhage at the age of 29. 
Okay. Now, if that had happened there, because that would have been it. Because um, mm. the only way to get injured people out would, would have been to carry them. So we were enormously lucky there that, you know, small things like a sprained ankle would have caused problems. So we, we, looking back on it, we were really fortunate. And there was no way of communicating. I mean, we wrote a letter home before we went, and then we just went off into the unknown for a month, and uh, our parents didn't hear from us, of course, till we came back. So tell me about the book and the talk. Well, with the talk, we um, we introduced what inspired us to make the journey, a bit of background there, and then uh, I usually do that bit, and David tells us about the journey that we made. Now, because we set off from Barnsley and drove to Kathmandu, whereas nowadays you'd fly, of course, that took three months, and it was three months on the way back. Um, so that's not exactly a recognised route, is it? Barnsley to Kathmandu. No, <laughs> no but... <laughs> It's not on the green no. signs, is it? <laughs> so we did, we have this wonderful <laughs> sign where we found in the middle of, near Quetta in uh, in Pakistan, we found this sign and it, it signposted the, the places back along the road, but it also signposted London. And we added one that said Barnsley. <laughs> and, you know, so we put that in, right too. In, in the talk. But um, the book, we managed to get Chris Bollington. He agreed to write a foreword for us. And he compared, you know, because he knew what it was like at that time, and he's written a bit about that. And then the books are basically is, um, are our diaries, David and my diaries, with added memories, which we, because, you know, you go to this place in Nepal where we've been to before, and we'd, um, you know, we'd say, hey, do you remember that? You know, and all these memories started pouring out. And uh, so we recorded those. And also, I then managed to make contact with one the, one of the other guys that went with us who we pretty much lost touch with but he lived in france but i called in on him and we well, we don't recall this we found he'd kept a record it wasn't written in diary style like ours but we've got bits of his uh, account of it in as well um mixed with the memories and letters home and things like that and would it be fair to say that you guys were amongst the first ones to shall we say socially democratize having that type of adventure I think it was. I think it was because prior to us, if you didn't have connections, a lot of money, you know, connections to the Royal Geographical Society or the military or the Alpine Club, or you, you didn't have an awful lot of money, you, were, um, you couldn't do that sort of thing. Lovely. John, many thanks for talking to us. Okay. Thank you. And John and Dave's talk is taking place at the Sheffield Adventure Film Festival on Saturday the 2nd of March at 2.15 and you can find out more information about it at the Shaf website or by visiting the show notes to this edition of the podcast on our blog. Visit blog.walksaroundbritain.co.uk Well, that's the end of another podcast. Remember, you can always subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. So until next month, thanks for listening and happy walking.